and a politician. Now, I don't know if they walked into a bar because that's how most of these stories start. But wherever they had it, this doctor, this engineer, and this politician were having a conversation about whose profession was the oldest. And the doctor started and he said, well, without a physician, humanity couldn't have survived. So the medical profession is undoubtedly the oldest. No, the engineer said. Before life even began, there was complete chaos. It took an engineer to create some semblance of order from that chaos. Engineering is older. And at that point, the politician chimed in triumphantly and said, yeah, well, who do you think created the chaos? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was clearly God who brought order, who brought existence out of the chaos, right? Well, yes and no. And what I mean by that is when we say God, I think most of us don't have in mind the the triune God, that is the Godhead, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we say God, generically, most of us, we're subconsciously thinking of the Father. And yet, in contrast to that, Scripture tells us that Christ, the Son, was intimately involved in creation. For that matter, the Spirit was too. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. But we're not talking about the Spirit tonight. We're talking about Jesus' role in creation. Think about a text we've already looked at more than once in these first several lessons of this series from John chapter 1. All things were made by him or made through him. That is through the word, through Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. The son definitely had an active role in creation. And Paul speaks to that in Colossians chapter 1 more clearly than anywhere else in scripture, I think. And I want us to examine that together for a few minutes. And I'd advise you tonight, I don't always do this, but I would advise you to take your Bible and and open up to Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to. Um, Certainly we'll have most of the text up on the slides, but I think you'll understand the structure here that we're going to talk about better if you can actually visualize it. And I couldn't put it all up there at once on one slide just for the sake of space because I know that some of you would not have been able to read it if I'd made it that small. We won't name any any names. But Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Rock already read a bunch of this, but we're going to take it down through verse 20. This is actually all one section. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Scholars have identified this as an example of an early Christian hymn. And even if 
they're not quite right that this is a hymn. This is at least a poem. And I think it's helpful for us to understand the structure of the poem or the hymn here. Look at the language that's used. Verse number 15, how it's similar. We're told there that he is the firstborn of all creation. Looked in at verse number 18, the second half of it. He is the firstborn from the dead. You see that parallelism? Who is, it says in the King James, if you have that. We have a basis then for this assertion about the fact that Jesus is the firstborn. For, verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, etc. We have a basis for the assertion that's made about him being the firstborn from the dead in verse number 19. For, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You notice in both of these we have in parallel things in heaven and things on earth in verse number 16. We have then the reverse of that in parallel in verse number 20, things on earth or things in heaven. The prepositions in all of these passages, that can be obscured in some English translations, but in, to, for, it's the same Greek prepositions in every one of these verses, in verse 16, and then in verses 19 and 20. So the upshot of this and the point I'm making is it seems that we have two parallel stanzas. Verses 15 and 16 are one stanza where he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, etc. And the second stanza in parallel begins in the middle of verse number 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, etc. But that means we've still got a chunk there in the middle. We have a, a transitional stanza in verse 17 through the first half of verse number 18. Now, remember, these verse divisions, just like the chapter divisions, are not originally part of the text. And sometimes their placement can be unfortunate because it can obscure some of these connections sometimes. But in verse 17 and 18, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. You notice that all three of those short sentences start with and. But not only that, it has a, a structure here that there's a, an inclusion, that is the beginning and the end are in parallel, and he is before all things, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, and he is, and he is, that's the same pronoun that's used there in both of those places. It's a different pronoun that's used throughout the rest of this text, that is where we see he is the rest of this time, it's not the same pronoun, we don't see that in English. But in Greek, it's different. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, okay, great, this is a hymn, this is poetry, it's song, and there's some parallelism, big deal. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that I guess scholars find out to write commentaries about, but what's, what's it matter? Well, this isn't just an academic exercise because I think when we break this down, it helps us to understand the point that Paul's making here in this text. We have two longer balanced sections in verses 15 and 16, verse, the second half of verse 18 down through verse number 20, and the point of those two longer stanzas, the first one, Christ is supreme in creation. The second one, Christ is supreme in new creation. 
And then in between, we have that shorter section, those three little clauses, bridging the gap, connecting creation to new creation, looking backward and then looking forward. And it's at that point, right there at the center, we have the supremacy, the centrality of Christ. It's no coincidence that that's at the center of this little song. In him, all things hold together. That's the point of all of this. So let's look through each one of these three stanzas in a little bit more detail. The point of the first stanza, verses 15 and 16, as I said, is to demonstrate Christ's role in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the assertion here. An image is something that looks like, something that represents something else. Uh, the Greek word here is akon, where our English word icon comes from. Now, probably these days we're most familiar with that in the context of our computers. You get on your desktop, you click on an icon, and what happens? Some program, some software opens. Why? It's because that icon represents the program. Well, that's the idea here. Jesus represents God. No one has ever seen God, John says in John chapter 1 and verse number 18. But in Christ, that invisible God has been revealed. Jesus says things like that repeatedly. When I think about chapter 14, verse 9 of John's gospel, remember when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's sufficient for us. And Jesus says, Philip, you've been with me so long, you still don't know. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is the icon, the image of God. He's also the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's not to say he's the first thing that was created. We talked about that last week with preexistence. But this could also be used metaphorically in the sense that he's in first place. We're talking about his rank, his position here. Uh, we see this used, for example, in the Old Testament, the same terminology in the Greek translation of David, the 89th Psalm, verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't literally the firstborn in his family, was he? No, in fact, he was the youngest. So we're not talking literally about birth order or Jesus being created in any way here. Applied to David, it's talking about making him exalted, putting him in first place above all of those other kings of the earth. The same thing is true for Jesus. He has that preeminent rank. What's the basis for this then? The basis of the assertion. For, we're grounding this, verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All of God's creative work took place in terms of Christ. And you notice here it's comprehensive. All things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. But what's even more interesting than that is that all things were created not only by him, through him, but for him. Jesus not only brought the universe into being, but he's also its goal, he's its end, he's its purpose. The whole point of creation 
is to bring it into a relationship with Christ. That right there already anticipates that final stanza, the reconciliation that's achieved through Christ. And let's go there now to that final stanza to see the parallels. Verse number 18, halfway through it. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, hopefully at this point, you see how that echoes verse number 15. But just as a reminder, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now we have in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So you see, we moved here from creation to new creation when we're talking here about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. Beginning here indicates something like the, the source or the first principle. Christ is the one who initiates the resurrection. Of course, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can see Paul talking about things like that at length. Verse number 20 of that chapter, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. There were Many Jews, not all Jews, but many Jews in the first century who had a concept of resurrection. They were looking for God to raise the dead, particularly the righteous dead, at the end of time, the end of history when God wrapped everything up. The Pharisees were looking for that. I mean, think about the way Paul talks about it in Acts, for instance. Uh, Martha was looking for that when Jesus is talking about Lazarus. He said, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection. But what's different about Jesus is that no one was expecting God to raise anyone from the dead right in the middle of history rather than at the end. So in other words, Jesus brings the future into the present. God's new age, the end times, new creation, that's invaded the here and the now. This is a foretaste of the future that God's promised now, this isn't complete yet. You notice that Paul says it's in order that he might be preeminent, but he reigns now with that future victory already guaranteed because he's the first fruits of those who've been raised from the dead. The basis of that, for, again, just like in verse 16, here in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The idea is that God's presence was fully found in Christ just as it used to be found in the temple and before that in the tabernacle. You remember where the Ark of the Covenant was and the Holy of Holies? That's where the presence of God was said to be. It's very much like what John says in John chapter 1 and verse number 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory that Shekinah, the glory of God, the way it was manifested over the ark. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why was that? In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why was that? Verse 20, to reconcile all things to him. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Remember that the goal of creation to be is, is to be in relationship with Christ, but that relationship was fractured. It was broken. And so creation needed to be reconciled to Christ. In his death, 
and his resurrection, that relationship is restored. And the all things here, to reconcile all things to him, that's comprehensive. Just like he created all things, well, here all things are going to be reconciled to him, even those forces that are opposed to him. If you go to the next chapter of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 15, it says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is in Christ. Even those elements that try to fight against the Lord will ultimately be subdued by him. Sounds a lot like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about Jesus being equal with God but then humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. The end of that, if you recall, the purpose of it is that so at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In the middle of all this then, back to Colossians chapter 1, We have creation, we have new creation. In the middle, we have this little stanza that bridges the gap that looks backward to creation, looks forward to new creation. Verse 17, he is before all things. That can be interpreted both in terms of time or of rank, that is rank that he is that firstborn again. But I think it's more likely here in terms of time, that is he is preexistent like we talked about last week. Christ existed before creation itself. In him, all things hold together. I think this is one of the most remarkable statements in all of the Bible. Not only did Christ create the world, he continues to sustain it. I think of what the Hebrews writer says in chapter 1, verse number 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What we typically call natural law, that is, we think that the world works a certain way and there's this idea that we sometimes have as if God set these things in motion and he sits back and lets it all run itself. That's not really what Scripture says. What we call natural law is in reality only the way that we usually perceive God working in the world. A miracle A sign is when God does something to get our attention. He does something out of the ordinary. But so-called natural laws aren't really things that God set up and then he leaves the world behind to allow it to run himself. That's God working too. It's just the way that he normally works day in and day out. In him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. Now, we've gone from looking backward here Looking in the present, now we're looking forward. The church holds a a crucial place in God's redemptive plan because that's the place where reconciliation is found. Remember, that's what this is all about, new creation, reconciling creation to God. If Christ is the firstborn of new creation, then life isn't going to be found outside of his body. Remember that he's the sinner. That's what this is all about. So summing up Paul's thoughts here about Christ in creation, Jesus is over creation. All things were made by him, but he's also the goal of creation. All things were made for him to be in that relationship with him. To accomplish that, 
that broken, fragmented creation has to be reconciled to God. There has to be a new creation. And Paul says that that takes place in the church. The question for us, I think, then is, well, so what? (laughs) Okay, we might understand that intellectually, and maybe this seems like a sort of highbrow lesson in some ways going through the text like this, but, but what sort of response does that prompt from us? In light of what God's done in Christ, how do we react? Paul actually answers that for us, starting in verse number 21. He makes the application uh, for us here, which is pretty handy for me. <laughs> and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Once those in Colossae were alienated from God, But now in Christ and in his church, they've been reconciled to him. And that's all for the purpose of them presenting themselves holy and blameless before God. When he says that here, to present you holy and blameless, that's sacrificial language. It's the very same language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, present technical term for a sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, rational, spiritual worship or service. Our very lives, the best that's in us is to be offered up fully, completely to God. God wants a people to image him in the world. He's seeking a people who will reflect him. He wanted that in the beginning when he created humanity in his own image. He sought that with Abraham and calling him. He sought it with Israel and setting them apart. He does that now in the church, his body. We are to be like Christ. That's the ground of Paul's ethics. If you go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, remember that's what this is all about, new creation, resurrected like him. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes into a lot of specifics here, then, these ethical imperatives about how we're to live, but he sums it all up. In verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the message that they needed to hear. And that's the message that we need to hear too. Because of Jesus' role in creation and then in new creation, we have this opportunity to be in a relationship with God. And because of that, we ought to seek to do everything in the name of Jesus so that we can be found in that relationship. If you're not in that relationship with him, 
this evening. If you're not doing those things that you ought to do and you need to make changes in a public way tonight, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.